did something stupid back in March and hurt my back. And I've been walking around, staggering around since. <laughs> but it's an honor and privilege to be with you this morning. I always love coming here and being with you people. We like to try to come on a, the uh, Senior Luncheon Day and, and fellowship with you and then other special occasions that uh, we have had uh, throughout the year. And so it's, it's good to be here. This morning I want to share with you from Malachi and I'm going to be doing something a little bit different than we now normally do. I'll be using verses throughout the book of Malachi. And it starts with the first verse here. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord and to Israel by Malachi. The prophecy of Malachi is built around seven questions the people were asking God. The first one there, five, we see it in chapter 2, verse 1, or uh, chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse uh, 2. And it says, I have loved you, said the Lord. And the question was, but just say, but you say, how have you loved us? That's the first question that the people ask God here in Malachi. The second question comes from verse 6. And he says, In what way have we despised your name? And the Lord answers, and he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest, who despised my name, but you now say, how have I despised your name? The third question comes from verse 7. And it says, in what way have, defiled, have we defiled you, God? And he answers and says, but you say, how have we polluted your, how, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. It was despised by offering polluted food upon my altar. Verse four, uh, the fourth verse or fourth question comes from Second Malachi verse 17. And it says, what way have we wearied you, God? And God answers, you have worried the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we worried him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The fifth question is found in chapter 3, verse 7. In what way have we 
return to you. And God answers, From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The sixth question is found in chapter 3, verse 8, and it says, In what way have we robbed you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. And then the seventh question is, in what way have we spoken against you, God? And that's found in chapter 3, verse 13. And he says, you have been harsh against me. Your words have been harsh against me. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this time to be in your house. And we ask now that you help us to glean some truths from your holy word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's unpack these seven questions that we find here in Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And by this time, the temple had been rebuilt, but the worship of the Lord was beginning to weary the people. Divorce and intermarriage with non-believers was presenting a problem among the people. They were withholding their tithes and they were oppressing the poor. Their problem was similar to our problems today. They were weary of waiting for the God to fulfill his promises. Haggai prophesied that the temple they had built would be greater than Solomon's temple. Zechariah said the Lord would come riding on a donkey. But these things had not happened yet. And the people were being becoming weary of worshiping God. The Lord and people would not repent and many nations were not joining with them as was predicted by Haggai and Zechariah. They predicted that God would be in their midst and it wasn't happening. The hope that caused people to be pure and take risk and attempt great things for God was fading. And just like today, it's not easy to press on in faith when the Lord's coming is delayed year after year. It's easy to complain and become complacent to our mission of winning souls to the Lord. It's easy to lose our vision. It's easy to become weak in our spiritual life. Often we ask it in our hearts, if not aloud, if you really love me, then why are these things the way they are? Why is there so much evil around us? Our prayer should be, Lord, touch us with the light and fire. That would turn our hearts to praising you, to banish our doubts 
and to give us boldness to accept the Great Commission. The first question the people asked God was, how have you loved us? If you really loved us, you wouldn't have sent us into exile in Babylon. If you really loved us, you wouldn't have destroyed Jerusalem, our beautiful city, and that beautiful Solomon's temple. You would not have destroyed them. We would not be living in such dire conditions just like us today. They were alienated from God. We are the first mark of people who are alienated from God is they treat God with contempt and justify their own behavior. It's easy to see that we in America, for the most part, have abandoned God. And many no longer darken the church door. And many of those who do only give him leftovers. They have abandoned God and blamed him for all their problems. Years ago, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's daughter, appeared on one of the morning newscasts. And she was asked, where was God when this shooting at Columbine happened? And she said, we've abandoned God in our, our schools. And then we blame him when something like this happens. Malachi uses an example here of Jacob and Esau. He says, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated. That's harsh words, isn't it? Woman came to Charles Spurgeon one day and she asked him, I don't understand how God can hate Esau. And Spurgeon's answer was, well, I don't have that problem. My problem is, why does God love Jacob? Here was two twin boys. Before they were even born, they were struggling in Rebecca's womb. And when they came out, God said that two nations are here fighting one another. And when they came out, Esau was the one that came out first. Seconds later came Jacob. He was holding on to Esau's uh, foot. There they were. And God says, I have loved Jacob and I've hated Esau. As I said, those are strong words. But what God was really saying is, I've accepted Jacob, but I've rejected Esau. A lot of people point to this as predestination, but I look at it as a foreknowledge of God, knowing what these two boys will do. And when Jacob 
deceived Esau from his birth and took his birthright away from him. He did two things. There was two conditions happening here. One was material possessions. The firstborn got most of what the father's wealth involved. But the second condition, or the second thing that he <coughs> stole, or Esau rejected, was that covenant God made with Abraham. The covenant came to Abraham, it went to Isaac, and now it was going to want to one of the two of these boys. One of them will be accept that covenant relationship. It says Esau despised his birthright. And in doing so, he despised what God had done through Abraham, through the blessings that he gave Abraham. He despised them. And then when Rebekah and Jacob plotted to steal the blessing of his father, the blessing contained two things. It contained the material blessings and it contained the blessings of the covenant. Esau cried and wept, not because he lost the covenant with Abraham. He cried and wept because he wasn't getting material possessions. If you look at it, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And God blessed Israel. The blessings that came through Abraham's covenant was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's why God accepted Jacob. Because Jacob followed him. He was ready and willing and able. Esau rejected. He despised what was going on. People ask, how have we despised your name? And God says, where is my honor? The people were showing little or no respect for God. You call me master, but they're not honoring God and showing him respect for their worship. We often do not know that we are despising God by our actions. It did not happen all at once. It's always a slow progression. Often we find ourselves on a slippery slope and we do not know how to stop sliding. Historians and congressmen and so forth are trying to rewrite history. President Obama says we are not a Christian nation. But if you go back to the founding of this nation, George Washington was sworn in as the President of the United States when New York City 
was the capital of the United States. And after this ceremony, he led Congress over to a little chapel, St. Paul's Chapel. That chapel is located on ground zero where 9-11 terrorists attacked us. And there on that little chapel, George Washington dedicated the United States to God. William Bradford, the first governor of Massachusetts, he lived on what they call Governor's Island, across from Boston. And he dedicated Boston as the city on the hill that would shine forth freedom and the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. If you remember, Ronald Reagan referred to us as that city on the hill. Jesus said the city on the hill cannot hide its light. And we as Christians cannot hide our light. People ask, how have I defiled you? They have defiled my altar by offering defiled food to God. The sacrifices that the priest were offering to God were to be a perfect sacrifice without any blemish. And the people were bringing them blind and crippled and uh, <coughs> defective animals as their sacrifice to God. They weren't bringing their best. You know, if I, <coughs> back in those days, taxation usually meant bringing animals and uh, grain and so forth. If you brought something like that to the governor, he would probably have you beheaded or something. But yet people were bringing their leftovers to God. Ministers of the gospel today offer defiled food to their congregation by preaching a watered-down message, a watered-down gospel. The Apostle Paul wanted only to preach Jesus crucified and Him resurrected. Defiled food is a failure to listen to God and a failure to have a burden for God's glory. If the pastor's message is sloppy and ill-prepared, it is like offering defiled food on God's altar. And when the message is not saturated with prayer and meditation on the Word of God, it is like offering defiled food to God and His people. Chapter 2 and verse 17 asks the question, How have we wearied you? We have wearied God with our vain and profane words. The fourth commandment tells us, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Ezekiel 36, 23 says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned or profaned among the nations. We've worried him with empty and 
uh, repeating, uh, repeating words. Matthew 6, 6 and 7 says, Tell us not <clears throat> to use, or tells us not to use uh, meaningless words, repetitious words when we pray, thinking that God will hear them for their many words. One of the famous Jewish prayers begins with blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, and honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. So they have all these words, repeating them, thinking that that will get God's attention more so. We've worried him with the insincere words. Don't call me Lord if you're not willing to obey my commandments. God is the unseen listener to every word we speak. Our words may tend to be displeasing to him, but they won't be if we live in a constant relationship uh, and constant realization that God is present in our lives. We will give an account to God for every word we speak. Our words are pleasing to God when we praise Him, when we pray to Him, when we witness to others about Him. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, In what way shall we return? Malachi says repentance is the only way we can return. Israel didn't know how to return to God. Either they didn't know how to repent of their sins and return to God, or they were simply ignorant. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. It's sorry enough to change. Repentance describes what the, what the very act of returning is. In chapter 3, verse 8, Israel asks the question, in what way have we robbed God? Usually when we think about Malachi and messages from that, that's usually the message. How have we robbed God? It may seem strange to ask how we could rob God. What could we possibly steal from God? But we steal from God by withholding our tithes and offerings. Everything we have belongs to God. And if we tithe 10%, it doesn't mean that the remaining 9% or 90% is ours to do with what we want to do. The remaining should be done according to God's will. God says, test me, give me that, give me to me so that my house may thrive. And I will open the windows of heaven and bless you. We can never outgive God. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, In what way have we spoken against you? Israel had spoken against God in harsh words. 
and sinful ways and did not even know it. They said it was useless to serve God. They saw prosperity of those who did wickedness and felt it was useless to serve God as long as the wicked who didn't serve God lived comfortably. How many times have we wondered how the rich that don't serve God prosper so? And we probably have asked that question ourselves. But it costs something to serve God and obey, obey His commandments. We have to humble ourselves humbly before God. To walk in holiness with Him. For many Christians, the cost is not worth the reward. In chapter 3, verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of all those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The people of God began to speak to one another and to encourage one another. And it's a lesson for us. When God's people begin to share with one another, God hears and listens. He loves to see unity among his people. When the people saw the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, it made them think that God had forgotten them. But Malachi promises that not only does God remember, but he wrote it down. He wrote it down in his book of remembrance. And he has it there. And I think on Judgment Day, he'll open up that book of remembrance. God said that we are his jewels. We may not feel like we are jewels, but that's the way God looks at us. There are several ways we Christians are jewels. We're hard and durable. We stand when we are in the face of tribulation. We're durable. We have luster before God. God sees that light within us. He sees how beautiful we are. We look at those jewels and we see how beautiful a jewel can be. Jewels are made by God alone. We are made in the image of God. We alone 
We are made by God. We come in all different sizes and shapes. I heard a minister say one time, I've buried as many skinny people as I have of overweight people. We all come in sizes and shapes, all different colors throughout the world. But God still loves us. We're found all over the world. God's people are everywhere. You know, we live here in America, we don't think about the Christians that may be in Iran or in Egypt or over in Myanmar. But they're all over the world. We should be praying for them. We're associated with royalty. Did you see the queen's crown when they had her funeral? How magnificent that was. Peter says we are a royal priesthood. And we are. We are associated with royalty. We're protected. All precious stones are usually secured. People that can afford precious jewels have them in safes. If you walk into a jewelry store, everything is under lock and key, especially the very expensive stuff. God looks at us as being a precious person, and He protects us. We're in the shadow of His, under His wing, if you will. We're not polished, or we might not be polished right now. And I know I'm not. But one day we will be polished. And we'll be presentable to our Lord and Savior. One day the distinction between righteousness and evil will be evident to everyone. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 says, but you who fear, fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's Jesus Christ, shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves in a stall. Let a newborn calf out of the stall and it starts running and leaping. When we set ourselves to love God above all else, We'll go out leaping with the freedom of a newborn calf. Freedom from the love of money. Freedom from wedding or marriage unfaithfulness. Freedom from to lift up your hands in praise to God. Freedom to discover the thrill of godliness and love. Freedom to de decrease that Christ might increase and that God might be all in all in us. And so that's my message to you this morning. If you have those questions in your heart, why is God, if he's a God of love, why is all these things going on? And sometimes it's hard to understand those things. But God is in control. He's in control of the climate too. We hear a lot about climate change. 
But God loves us. He's in control. He saw. He sees what's going to happen. And he knows what's going to happen. And we can look to him and know that he's going to do his children good. Let's pray.